the ground. When we rise from the depths, show us the light of your way. Meet us, O oh God, on the path made by Jesus. Amen. Our first song is number 23, um, and I'm going to sing the first verse, and you're welcome to join the first verse in, in Zulu. Sometimes it's good to notice what other words say. Um, just a note on the spelling of Zulu, the TH um, is actually just a T sound in Zulu. It's kind of tricky for English people. So the words are Hambanati Nkululi Wetu, um, which literally means um, walk with us, our liberator. Um, and that was kind of cool to, to look that up. So we'll, we'll sing um, Zulu and then, and then in, in English. Um, you're welcome to stand if you like. It's a good song to stand with. Hambanati Kuruli Wetu, Hambanati Kuruli Wetu, Hambanati Kuruli Wetu, Hambanati Kuruli Wetu, Kuruli 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 Wetu, Kuruli 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 Wetu, Kuruli turn the page to number 25. 
uh, brethren we have met to worship. Uh, how strong do the women feel today? I was going to have the women sing the second verse and the men sing the third verse. Laurie's shaking her head. Okay, we'll all sing all the verses. Um, just a note to you, if you think you know the words to this song, you don't. Um, this is one of those ones that they've changed slightly, right? Brethren, we have met to worship sisters, let us praise our God. The first line is even different, all right? to confess so that we confront ourselves and name to God the things that prevent us from being fully in a right relationship with God. We name those things that keep us from accepting ourselves and accepting others. We name how our personal desires often don't actually line up with God's desires. And we dare to do this naming, this vulnerable act, because we know that we approach a merciful God. So let's take this time now. Let's turn to 893 in the back. 
And I invite you to read this silently, and then we'll read it together. Please pray with me, reading the bold print. For failing to love others as you have loved us, God of grace. For wasting your gifts and hoarding our goods, God of grace. For plundering the earth and abusing the planet, God of grace. For fearing those who are strange to us and ignoring those in need, God of grace. For losing heart and abandoning hope, God of grace. For all the ways we turn from you, God of grace. We offer our prayers in the name of the one who saves us, Jesus Christ. Amen. We will sing uh, the assurance of grace number 172, God Calls You Good.
Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. God calls us good, beloved children. Through Jesus, you are free to be forgiven and to extend forgiveness, to serve and to be served, to love and accept love. Hallelujah. This scripture takes place right before the stoning of Stephen, and this passage will have Stephen talking. Acts 7, verses 55 to 60. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. This is John 14, 1 through 14, and it starts with Jesus talking to the disciples. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be too. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas asked, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you will also know the Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father that that will be enough for us. Jesus replied, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been with you all this time? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words I have spoken to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Trust me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask for in my name so that the Father can be glorified in the Son. When you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. 
Please pray with me. Open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and to know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you today, now, and always. Amen. We are now in a wonderful time in the church year on the high after Easter. The spring weather we've been having recently, especially today, it's almost summer weather, <laughs> certainly helps boost our spirits and our energy. The first scripture that we heard today that Rachel read from Acts chapter 7 is set in the exciting days of the church in Jerusalem and centers on one individual named Stephen, who is recognized broadly as the first martyr for the faith. And as has long been acknowledged, there was a dramatic difference in the way that the disciples understood Jesus and his message before his death and resurrection and afterward. Time and again during Jesus' life, as recounted in the Gospels, the disciples, though unquestionably devoted to Jesus, often just didn't get who he was and what he means for the world. The second scripture that Stevers read from John chapter 14 is one example where Jesus, at the Last Supper, tries to reassure his followers about his identity with God. He's not beating around the bush. It's just in the face of questions, the very, very end, he's laying it out and saying who he is. Now, the amazing fact about Jesus' followers after witnessing the resurrection or learning about it from others who had seen him, including the famously doubting Thomas, it's quoted in the John scripture, is that their previous uncertainty and waffling is completely gone. Arguably the strongest evidence confirming who Jesus was comes from the events immediately following the resurrection when a more than somewhat motley but well-intended crew completely got it together to lead a movement that was literally to change the world. Now, turning back to the first scripture for today about Stephen, the early church saw rapid growth among Jews who were quite diverse culturally. So to think of them as sort of like a monolithic group, even just in the city of Jerusalem, is, is actually not quite accurate. In Jerusalem, a city where the, the early church was, the earliest church was based, there were two main groups, although there are many more, but there were two main ones, the so-called Hebraic Jews, who spoke Aramaic, which was Jesus' first language, and whose roots in Palestine were quite deep. And then there was also the so-called Hellenistic Jews, who were linguistically and culturally Greek Jews, who typically had lived in other parts of the ancient world, for example, Greece itself, but also places like Egypt and Turkey. In the days of the early church, as described in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, now I'm quoting, about that time, while the numbers, number of disciples continued to increase, a complaint arose. Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service, the Greek widows. The twelve, now apostles, called a meeting of all the disciples and said, it isn't right for us to set aside proclamation of God's word in order, order to serve tables. Brothers and sisters, 
Carefully choose seven well-respected men from among you. They must be well-respected and endowed by the Spirit with exceptional wisdom. We will put them in charge of this concern. As for us, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the service of proclaiming the word. This proposal pleased the entire community. They selected Stephen, a man endowed by the Holy Spirit with exceptional faith. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. The community presented these seven to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. God's word continued to grow. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Even a large group of priests embraced the faith. That's the end of that scriptural passage. Stephen soon distinguished himself among these deacons, quote, for the way God's grace was at work in his life and for his exceptional endowment with divine power. And he was doing great wonders and signs among the people, very Jesus-like. But at the same time, he ran seriously afoul of the local religious authorities who falsely accused him of blasphemy. Stephen delivered an extensive speech, actually a sermon, before the council, the Sanhedrin, essentially recounting the history of their faith and pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of what Moses and many other prophets had foretold. This infuriated the council. And then rereading the scripture that, that Rachel had read. But Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stared into heaven and saw God's majesty and Jesus standing at God's right side. He exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the human one standing at God's right side. At this, they shrieked and covered their ears. Together, they charged at him, threw him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses placed their coats in the care of a young man named Saul. As they battered him with stones, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, accept my life. Falling to his knees, he shouted, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then he died. Interestingly, this is the first mention of Saul, who shared Stephen's Greek language and outlook. Some have speculated that Stephen's martyrdom had a profound effect on Saul, at first for ill, as he zealously persecuted Christians, and later, as Paul, for good, after his own conversion. What is clear, though, is how Stephen's martyrdom marked a turning point for the, church in, for the church in Jerusalem. The persecution of Christians accelerated dramatically, leading to the dispersion of Jesus' followers across Judea and Samaria and then beyond, becoming what some described as the kickstarting of Christianity as a global mission movement. So what are some of the takeaways for us from the story of Stephen? I think there are three. First, Stephen's personal transformation from, in essence, a table server to an articulate exponent sermonizer of his and actually our faith at the cost of his life points to the amazing power of the Holy Spirit when we are open to receiving it. 
Think about the unanticipated turns our own lives have taken on our journeys of faith. I'm reflecting on Stephen's story. A second takeaway for me is that has to do with this concept of discipleship. Discipleship is really, really important in the Anabaptist walk of faith, going back 500 years to the very beginning of the movement. And what it is is very simple. It's aiming to follow Jesus' words and actions. The parallels between Stephen's final moments on earth and those of Jesus in his final moments in the passage that we've heard are really clear. While it's safe to say that none of us yearns to die a martyr's death for our faith, which thankfully is highly unlikely, Stephen does remind us of the importance of looking to Jesus as our model and emulating him as best we can. And the third takeaway, final takeaway is this. I think Stephen's final words underscore the amazing power of forgiveness, which of course has particular meaning for Anabaptists. As I've shared in other reflections before, to forgive does not mean to excuse or forget. It is, quote, the intentional and voluntary process by which a victim undergoes a change in feelings and attitude regarding an offense. Let's go of negative emotions such as vengefulness, for swears recompense from or punishment of the offender, however legally or morally justified it might be, and with an increased ability to wish the offender well. Stephen's death did not inspire Christians to form guerrilla groups to defend themselves against their persecutors and engage in retribution or reactive violence. What did they do? They redoubled their work to share the basic message of God's love, thereby changing us and the entire world. Amen. Our song of response is 661 on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand, uh, which maybe speaks to a specific moment in the story of Stephen, his uh, just uh, facing an imminent death, but also seeing hope um, in being with Jesus.
Join me in prayer. Faithful God, you care about our lives and our world, and you pledge to walk alongside of us. You pledge to go find us when we are that sheep that has gone astray. God, we praise you for your many daily reminders of your presence with us, all the small things that we take for granted. God, we come before you today knowing that in, all you, in, in you all things are possible. God, help us to be open to the Holy Spirit, to look to Jesus as our model for how to live, and to forgive as Jesus forgives. We thank you for your steadfast faithfulness to us and how you continue to be present in the world. Help us then to be faithful to you and act with love towards all that you have created. Amen. Hear these words of blessing. May God bless you and keep you. May the very face of God shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God's presence embrace you and give you peace. Amen.